Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and all the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the third Sunday after the Epiphany, January the 23rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. It's been kind of a busy week for us. We, we had to go to Duke, which is about three and a half hours away. We went over there on Wednesday, spent the night, and then Will had an appointment with a neurologist on um, Thursday morning. And the neurologist, his, his comment when he came in was, you know, it's absolutely amazing, having read your file, to now come here and sit and see a guy who is completely well, who doesn't have any difficulties thinking, walking, doing things. Uh, he had him do a whole bunch of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, sort of um, dexterity sort of exercises and a few other things like that just to see, uh, get a baseline on his um, neurological function and check, check for neuropathies and all that kind of junk. So anyway, it was a good trip. We had a good time. Um, it was a good couple of days together. And, and so the three of us had a good, we had an enjoyable couple of days. So it was nice. We had some snow last weekend. So that was kind of nice, kind of expected maybe to get a little bit um, at the end of this week, but it didn't materialize for us at least. And so uh, anyway, it's been a good week. Um, I've got several friends right now who have COVID. And so I would ask for prayers for them. I'm continuing prayers for my friend, David, uh, for Steve, for Chloe, um, Danny, seems like somebody else too. But then also my friend Anne Marie, I'd ask for prayers for her as well. She doesn't have COVID. She's got something else going on. Not quite sure what it is yet. So uh, just ask for your prayers for them if if you would do so. So anyway, it's been uh, otherwise a good week for us. Um, I, I think it's you know I, I like winter. I'm one of those oddballs. Uh, I like winter. I like uh, summer is my least favorite season. I like the other three much better. I don't like the heat all that well. We lived in Pauley's Island, South Carolina for about six and a half years, and I loved Pauley's Island, and I loved the people there, the people in the church, the, the other people in the place. Loved it, every bit of it, but it was hot, and I don't want to live in a hot place anymore. So anyway, we've just been kind of getting things done around here and, and sort of you know, kind of enjoyed it, sort of a relaxing week. But then, like I said, a couple of days of activity of, of going all the way over there and back. So anyway, we're we're glad to be back. Had a great lunch, by the way. We stopped at a place called Ketchy Creek, and it's in Moxville, North Carolina. Highly recommended if you're there. It's a it's Ketchy Creek. I think it's like bakery, maybe. Um, it, it it's worth the stop for the baked goods but the sandwiches there are excellent too i would highly recommend it it's right off the interstate maybe two miles off the interstate anyway so here we go let's get started on the lessons today what we have first is the the basically the only recorded rosh hashanah service ever in the in the bible um and it, it's after the people have come back from uh exile in babylon they've come back so we're talking about fourth fifth century somewhere in through there um and and so they come back, and Nehemiah is the governor and the sort of the temporal leader who comes back first um, and makes a survey of the situation in Jerusalem, and his survey revealed to him that, wow, 
It's pathetic. It's sad. The walls are broken down. The people are demoralized. Nobody seems to be there to provide any leadership. And so he makes his survey, and he comes back, and he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild this wall. And then about 52 days later, they had rebuilt the wall despite opposition within the camp, opposition outside the camp, um, people trying to turn them into the uh, to the king and all this other mess. And so Nehemiah was a great leader. He, kept, he, he found his objective, figured out how he was going to do it, and then kept focused and kept the people focused on that objective. And in a little bit over seven weeks, they had done that work. And then the next thing that needed to happen was they needed to rebuild the temple. And so that's where you get Ezra, who comes in uh, as a priest and a scribe, and he is going to be one of the leaders of that movement. There will be others as well, um, Zerubbabel being one of those. And so they, they are discouraged uh, because the, the work of building the temple is not going to happen in 51 days. It's going to require a lot more um, work. It's going to require a lot more resources, things that are not there. They're going to have to get things for that work, and, and yet they do it because of great leadership, but largely because the Lord was with them and worked alongside them, and so they were able to get things done because the Lord was working with them, and that's the thing that we need to remember about this story, but also about the work that we've been given to do in our day. Jesus said... At the end of the Great Commission, lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And then as we read through um, the book of the Acts, which is the, the early church, it's the history of the early church and the work that it did, we see Jesus working with them through the power of the Holy Spirit in all that they do. And that's what built the church, beginning at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and the people were drawn to the place where they were. And so... We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to expect the Holy Spirit, but we also need to pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to come whenever we gather, whenever we are, are gathered together, informally or formally. But we need to, to make room for and leave room for the Holy Spirit to come and work among us and work through us. And so in, in this place, it's right now in this time, it's a little bit easy to be discouraged um, because of all the stuff that's going on in the world and, and all that we've been through the last couple of years, hopefully we're getting to the end of that. And so what we need to do is not be discouraged because Jesus promised he would be with us to the end of the age. But the problem is too often we get caught up in the work that we're doing in the church or whatever, and, and we lose sight of that. And we end up doing things, well, on our own power and our own steam. And we get the kind of results that we should expect when we just do it on our own power. So here we have the people, like I said, in a, in a Rosh Hashanah service, and, and we know that's the case because of what they're reading, but also that they're encouraging the people not to be discouraged and, and not to be covered up in guilt, but, but this is a feast day. And so that's how we know where we are in the, in the church calendar, let's say. So all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They were of one accord in the same way the disciples were on the day of Pentecost. They gathered as one man. In other words, they had the same heart. They were there in one accord, in unison, to hear the word of God read. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. 
So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, which tends to be young people from 13 up, because these were the ones who had supposedly been instructed in the word and in the law, and they could understand the Hebrew. They could understand the language that was there because they'd been in Babylon for a long time. And so in in many cases, Hebrew wasn't normal for all the people. And so when they come back, they they have to get those who could understand what they heard. So it's not just men and women, and it's not men, women, and children indiscriminately. It's those who could understand what they heard. And it's more than understanding just the words that are read. It's understanding the implications of those words. And that's the reason they have bar mitzvahs and now bat mitzvahs too when, when young people turn 13. It's they, can, they stand and they read a portion of the law out loud in Hebrew. And that is intended to say, I understand. And now I am, but understanding brings a second thing. And that means responsibility. So if you have understanding, if you can show that you have an understanding of the law, then you are an adult, even though you're not a man or a woman yet. You're an adult as far as the the synagogue is concerned, and therefore you can take your place in the assembly, but you're responsible for the law. You're responsible for knowing it and keeping it and studying it always. And the, the benefit there accrues not just to the one who has come of age, but also to the father of the one who has come of age, because until that point, the father is deemed responsible for the sins of the other one because they didn't understand the law and the implications of the law, and because they didn't understand, that fault is held to be in the father who should have taught the law. So when it says that, and it's going to say it twice in here, it'll say all who could understand what they heard. So on the first day of the seventh month, and now we know, okay, for certain, we're Rosh Hashanah. And he read it from the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all people were attentive to the book of the law. In other words, there weren't people falling asleep in the congregation. Now, here's the thing about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is sometimes referred to as the Jewish New Year. Well, there are a bunch of Jewish New Years, just so you'll know. Rosh Hashanah is called the head of the year. That's what that means, Rosh Hashanah, head of the year. And so what happens on Rosh Hashanah is the divine books for the coming year are inspected in heaven. And and the person, each person's year is written out. This is what's going to happen to this person this year, whether it's a good year or a bad year. So in Rosh Hashanah, you read the law to convict people of sin in order that over the next 10 days prior to Yom Kippur, what happens is is that you're to repent and you're to change. You're to confess your sins. You're to repent of your sins. You're to make restitution for anything that requires restitution. And then on Yom Kippur, the book is sealed. So the judgment can be changed between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur But after Yom Kippur, it's all said and done. It's sealed. That book is sealed for the year. So you read the law so that people can become aware of where they have transgressed in the previous year so that they can fix it in the next 10 days. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, so he's standing up high. And as he opened it, all the people stood, as they do for the reading of the word. 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Let it be so, let it be so, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. What we've skipped, we've skipped some of that passage. And so what you see is the people were cut to the heart. And they were repenting of all these things. Now, they, they, the, the intention for this day is that, that the, they will be stricken in confession by the word, but at the same time, they will be encouraged to go and fix these things. And it's a feast day because it celebrates the law. It celebrates the lawgiver. And so they have to encourage the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. It's supposed to be a day of fast feasting. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it would be like having an Ash Wednesday service where everybody didn't just receive the ashes, they felt like they were unworthy even to receive them because they had been so cut to the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to confess their sins. And, and we would see this. We, this is, the, the, the people had lost sight of what it meant to be God's people while they had been in exile. And now as they come back, they're, they're, they're um, torn because they realize some of their sins that they had even just overlooked, like intermarriage. Marriage outside of Judaism, which is forbidden. And so they had to, they had to put away their wives. I mean, they're, they're cut to the heart that they have failed to uphold the law of God and to be God's people in the right way. And so now they hear the law as if for the first time. And they're repenting and they're broken over their sins. And, you know, in, in the Anglican world, in the... In the um, Worship, normal worship service, we have a, a prayer, and it's called the um, confession of sin, right? So in the confession of sin, what we do is, is that, that we, as a congregation, confess our sins. Now, that's intended to be a confession of two ways, right? It's intended to be a confession of individual sin, but it's also a recognition of corporate sin, and we, we call on people as the priest. I, I preface the call to the confession by saying, you who truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbor and intend to lead a new life, following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways, draw near with faith and make your humble confession to Almighty God devoutly kneeling. And then in the confession, we say things like this whether we mean them or not, but the intention is we are to mean it. This is how we should feel about our sins. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men. So we acknowledge who we're praying to and that he has the right to receive the prayers, but also the right to judge us because he was our maker. But he's also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the forgiveness for sins. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. So we're not saying, we think from time to time we may have 
you know, made slight errors. No, we bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. There's so much we can't even count them, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. So we acknowledge that God has every right to be angry with us because of what we have done. But in order to see that, we have to see how awful they truly are. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. I've told this story before. I sat in a church service one time at Pauley's Island. It was an 8 o'clock service, and I was going to leave there and go to um, the hospital and visit some people. And so I went to the 8 o'clock service, and I was just sitting in the congregation. But I did have a collar on because I was going to the hospital. So I'm sitting there, and we come to this, and I begin to say these words, and I realize I don't feel that way at all. And I'm not sure at that moment that I've ever felt that way, that I've ever really felt the weight of my own sin. And and so I'm saying this, and I'm thinking, this is not even honest that I'm saying these words. And then I realize, you know, I, I don't even know if I can take communion. I don't know if I should take communion today, and, but there was no way that I couldn't take communion, and there's two reasons. One of those is that's where I was going to receive the forgiveness that I desperately needed that day, but the second reason was, well, it would have looked really awkward and required a lot of explanation if I, a priest, didn't receive communion because everybody would have assumed, oh, he must be mad at whoever it was that was preaching and celebrating communion that day, and so I took communion whether I felt worthy of it or not. But that's kind of the whole point, was is that, that I needed to not feel worthy. I not- but, but what I had to be taken to was a place where I had to acknowledge that I didn't take sin seriously enough, and it absolutely crushed me in my spirit when that happened. It was a very difficult thing. In the gospel today, what we get is Jesus having just been baptized, just been driven out into the wilderness um, where he um, had to deal with the temptations of Satan. And so now he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified for all by all. So the word is spreading, and he's been teaching in these other places. And then he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood to read. The word had gotten out about him, and so he was offered the opportunity to read in the um, in the temp- in the synagogue that day. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him because you sat to teach. That's the way it worked, by the way. You sat down to teach. So when he sat down, it wasn't just that he was finished reading the scroll. No, the expectation was now he would take what he had just read and expound on that for the congregation. So when he sits, the eyes are on him because now he's going to teach. 
And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we don't know that he preached more than that. We assume that he did. But what he is saying here is, keep an eye on me. I'm going to do all the things that that passage says. The Messiah is here. The year of the Lord's favor is now here in this place at this time, and it's me. So he laid down a marker and said, there you go. There you go. This is what the Messiah was to do. This is what I'm going to do beginning this day. And now he had done some other things before that, and we know that because afterwards they begin to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know you. You're Jesus. You're Joseph's son. I see your brothers and your sister and your mother. Everybody's here. What are you talking about? Claiming to be somebody like that. And then Jesus said, you know, okay, so what are you going to do next? Okay, you're going to tell me, do here what you did in Capernaum, which implies that he had done some things in Capernaum. And then he turns on him and he says, a prophet, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And then he gives two examples of where the people wouldn't repent with Elijah and with Elisha, and yet foreigners did. And so that becomes offensive. And they were furious when they heard it. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So Jesus said to the people, he gave them the opportunity to determine whether he was the Christ or not. And he did so by saying, this is who I am, and this is what the Christ is going to do. Keep your eyes on me and see if I do the things that I just said. So Jesus said, I'm the Messiah that day, because that's what this was about. That's what that passage is about. It's the declaration by the Messiah in, in Isaiah of what he will do and what you will see. And Jesus said, keep your eyes on me and you'll see it. I'm going to do all of that. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You're looking at the Messiah. Now keep your eyes on me and see if I do those things. See if I live up to that declaration. It's the same as what happens in the Ezra and Nehemiah thing is, is they realize we didn't live up to that. We have not lived up to the law that God gave us, and they're struck to the heart, and they begin to repent over their failures. Here's a word for us. Jesus did all the things that he said he would do. He lived up to the title of Messiah. He gave us his name. Here's the painful part. How are we doing? How are we doing with that? How are we living into his righteousness, how we living into the mission that he gave us. Are we representatives? If people see us, do they see him? Do they see us doing the things that he did? Do they see the church doing the things that he did? Do they see the love that Jesus had? Do they see the righteousness Jesus had? It's not just about love. It's also about righteousness, but love is a huge part of that righteousness because it's loving God, which means that I follow his commandments and I follow his spirit if I'm a Christian because I've been given his spirit. If I can confess that Jesus is Lord, then I have his spirit. So how am I doing with listening to his spirit and following his spirit in my life? 
Those are important questions. That's love for God. And then how does it look? Am I loving my neighbor as I love myself? I was looking at something this week, actually, and it's really interesting because that commandment, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, is what prompts the question, who is my neighbor? To which Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as I've pointed out multiple times, Jesus never tells us anything about the guy except for he was beaten and robbed. He doesn't tell us if he's a Jew. He doesn't tell if he's a Samaritan. He doesn't tell us whether he's a Roman. He doesn't tell us anything. All he tells us is the Jewish people walked past him. Even the Jewish leaders, like priests, walked past this guy because they had, quote, more important things to do, including service in the temple. Jesus, in that parable, says there ain't nothing more important than taking care of your neighbor if your needs, if the neighbor needs it. Even temple service. Nope. Not more important. Which is an old principle in Judaism. It goes all the way back to when the three men come to Mo, or Abraham um, after he's been circumcised, and the, the ones who go down to Sodom, those three guys— before that, the way they read that same passage is, is that, that God came first. And the way they see it is he came to see how he was doing after his circumcision. Um, but, but what happens then is these three men come and he leaves. And he goes and takes care of those three men. And the principle they draw from that is there's nothing more important than hospitality to strangers, including being with God. It was okay for him to leave. And the proof of that is there was no judgment on him for doing so. And so the, the principle wouldn't have been unfamiliar to them at all, but they would have wanted to know, who is that guy? And, and the way that I know that, and the reason that I can say that, is because until the 12th century A.D., there was still debate about whether the neighbor included somebody who was not a Jew. Jesus cleared it up that day for us, but it wasn't until about the 12th century A.D. that it was finally decided, yeah, it includes everybody because we're all created in the image of God. But, but it took that long for that to be decided. And so our point is, is that how we doing with that, how we doing with loving our neighbor and how we doing with loving God. And as I said, loving God, part of that at least is how you doing with following his commandments and being a righteous person. It's a difficult question, and, and it's, not, it's one that should bring us to our knees, frankly. Because when they see us, they should see Jesus. When they see us doing things, they should see that as an outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Are we seeing people healed? Are we seeing people come to Jesus? Are we seeing, are we seeing all that stuff happening? Because Jesus says greater things than these will do. So are they seeing that? Or do we need to recommit ourselves? Should we feel like the people in the day of Ezra and Nehemiah? Should we be cut to the heart? And brought to repentance. Um, Paul is going to give us, this, this is how it's supposed to work in the church. He's going to make it really simple. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And so think back to the beginning of that Nehemiah lesson, right? All the people gathered as one man into the square. They were, they were there of one accord. They were together. And there's nothing like the power of unity, and Psalm 133 will tell us that. And there's a blessing that comes upon us when we are. And that's the bidding to confession includes, remember, those who are in love and charity with their neighbors. So here, Paul says, just as the body is one and has many members, and the members of the body, although many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We are made one in Christ. We aren't made whites and blacks and, and Asians and Mexicans and Guatemalans and whatever. You know, that's that, no, when we come together, when, when we are in Christ, we are one. And that's something to be celebrated. It's not something to be torn apart. It's, it's we have been forgiven. And now we can walk in that newness of life in order to love our neighbor. We can confess that we have failed in the past, but that has no effect in the present because Christ set us free at the cross. He took all that sin on himself. And, and if, if we're holding that old stuff against our brothers, then that's on us. We have failed to forgive them. For the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. If one foot should, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. It can't just decide that. It can't decide to act on its own. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each of them, as he chose. And he's comparing this to the body of Christ, that we're not all the same. We have different gifts. Remember, that's what he talked about last week in this same chapter from 1 Corinthians. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So he's already dealt with this sort of false humility that says, since I'm not a foot, I can't be part of the body. Since I'm not an eye, I can't be part of the body. That's false humility. It says that I'm not good enough because I'm not that. This, the passage here, the I can't say the hand I have no need of you or the head to the feet I have no need of you, that is the opposite of false humility. That's pride. Because you're not me, you're not valuable. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, is, which our more presentable parts do not require. I mean, it, our toes. If, if you lose a toe, your balance goes completely to pieces. I mean, the, the weaker parts of our body actually serve huge functions that we just take for granted. But we don't consider these things... Well, you know, um, well, I've got that toe that's crooked. I've got that one that's longer and it shouldn't be and blah, blah, blah. And so we're, we're going to hide those things. And then he's also talking about, obviously, reproductive organs, too. But, but what he's saying is, uh, no, we need every single one of these things. We can't do without these things. <clears throat> but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul talks about that in uh, Romans as well. Weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Um, It's important that we consider ourselves and understand ourselves one person. Because we are one body, we are all in Christ. We should value and celebrate the gifts that each person brings to the table. Whether those are flashy sort of upfront gifts, or whether those are servant gifts. They need to be equally valued. And we need to not see one of those as greater than the other. 
now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we don't lose our individuality by being brought into the, the body of Christ. We maintain our individuality because we were created that way, and then we exercise our gifts within that. Now, that individuality can certainly cause problems. It can <laughs> We don't always appreciate one another's individuality. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Um, I don't always appreciate other people's individuality. Sometimes I just roll my eyes and shake my head. But I have to be better than that. I have to actually celebrate that. So long as that individuality isn't sinful, that's the part that really matters. But, but he's saying you don't lose your individuality, but, and you don't lose your individual identity. You bring that, though, into the body, and you work together with the rest of the body. You're not the superstar in the body. You don't bring something to complete the body. You don't bring something that, that everybody else now has to bow down to. You're a part of the body but you're also individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. And I don't think that's a pecking order. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to say, is that this is a pecking order. These, This is first, this is second, this is third. You need first apostles. You need people who can preach the message. You need people who can preach the word of God. That way people will know. And knowing is important. Prophets will foretell. Teachers will then make clear everything. So the things that are questionable, the things that you don't understand, I can help with. I can help teach that. Then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Obviously, the answer is to this is no. No, 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 no. Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And so what he's saying is the higher gifts, because he's already described that, right, in the previous lesson that we read last week, the higher gifts that Paul talks about are those things which give wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Because he says very clearly last week, you know, it, it doesn't help if a bunch of people just get up and speak in tongues. Because then people who aren't there and people don't have to give you interpretation don't understand what's going on. The most important thing, Paul says, is to make Christ known, to make him understood, and for the church to know what to do about fulfilling the mission. That's wisdom. That's applied knowledge. And so that's the, the, the hierarchy that he says there. When he's talking about the higher gifts, he, he's talking about the gifts that make Christ known and help us know the right course of action to take. But it's important first that we see ourselves as part of the body of Christ and that we are individually members of it and that we're seeking to use our gifts for the building up of the church and the carrying out of the mission that Christ gave us. That's the important thing to remember in all of this. But it begins with unity. It begins with the people of God standing together under the Word of God and the Lordship of Christ because he earned that at the cross when he took our sins on and brought salvation to us. And so we celebrate his work. We agree with him in his declaration that that day the mission began and the revelation, the public revelation begins that day when he announces who he is and what he's going to do. We, 
as a church and we as Christians need to take on that same responsibility and that same mindset that says, keep your eye on me. Here's what it means to be a Christian. I intend to fulfill that this day.